The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning, The Law is Good. The Law is Good, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. So we consider this text together. We, we praise God with Paul that we've been justified by grace through faith, right? That our justification is by grace through faith alone, apart from the works of the law. If it had anything to do with works of the law, we would simply be hopeless, would simply be doomed. So we praise God. We're grateful to the Lord that our justification is by grace, grace through faith alone, apart from works of the law. Far from that implying then any further license to sin, justification by faith actually involves our death to sin through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin will not have dominion over us because we have died to sin and we are no longer under law, but now we are under the operations of his grace. And far from justification by faith, setting aside the law of God in any way, or repealing the law of God, abrogating the law of God, justification by faith actually involves our death to the condemning power of the law so that we might be married to another, namely united to our Lord Jesus Christ. And through our union with Jesus Christ, in order to bear fruit to God, we might obey the law then in the heart, or from the heart now in the power of the Spirit rather than attempting a faithless obedience according to the flesh of the old man and with no more than the letter of the law to enable us, which it simply cannot do. All of this is a promise of the new covenant. Right? This is all to be found in the promises of the new covenant that God will write his law upon our hearts, he will put his Spirit within us, and he will cause us to obey. It's a gracious, glorious promise of our new covenant salvation in Jesus Christ. So then with that in mind, what is the Christian's ongoing relationship to the law of God? If Paul doesn't set aside the law by justification by faith, if the law isn't set aside in our death to the law, then what is the Christian's ongoing relationship to the law of God? Has the law somehow become sin to me? Is the law... Or has the law become death to me? Paul is going to continue now to unpack and to explain that relationship. What is the ongoing relationship of the Christian to the law of God? Now, having explained our death to the condemning power of the law in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, having explained that our, that our own sinful desires are aroused by the, the law or, or aggravated by the law, provoked through the law, Paul now draws upon his own experience, his experience as an unbeliever, and then his experience as a believer, Paul draws upon his own experience now to further explain our ongoing relationship to the law of God. First, in drawing upon his own experience, this letter, Romans chapter 7, now becomes intensely autobiographical and personal, intensely personal to the Apostle Paul. In simply reading through the text, you can see a distinctive shift take place now in Romans chapter 7 in Paul's use of pronouns. If you'll notice with me in Romans 7, Paul now refers to himself 
using first-person pronouns, I, me, or my. And Paul will do so now 47 times between verse 7 and the end of the chapter. In other words, Paul is now calling upon his own experience to help us understand the Christian's relationship to the law of God. Secondly, in addition to those uses of pronouns, a simple reading of the text also reveals to us a distinction in Paul's use of verb tenses. Notice also in this section of Romans 7, from Paul's use of the past tense in verses 7 through 13 to, to describe his past relationship to the law when he was an unconverted man, to then his use of present tense verbs in verses 14 through 25 to describe his relationship to the law in the present then as a converted and mature Christian man. So Paul moves from past, verses 7 to 13, into the present, verses 14 through 25. And we're going to talk more about the significance of those verbs as we work through the text. But in doing this, in making now this letter personal or autobiographical. Paul isn't drawing attention to himself. The point is not to draw attention to himself. Paul is doing this. Paul is going to make this personal to communicate that even the common shared experience of Christians vindicates the law of God. His own experience is your experience and my experience as a Christian. Paul's not going to say anything that we're not familiar with. We are going to resonate with what Paul is teaching here and give our amen. I recognize that in myself. So it's not to draw attention to Paul himself. Paul's intention is to vindicate the law of God, and he's going to do so through your experience as a Christian, through my experience as a Christian, okay? What is true of Paul is true of you and I, both when we were unbelievers and when we became believers, such as is common to man. And what is going to be the result of that examination? There is no problem with the law of God. The law of God will be vindicated. The law of God is holy, just, and good. Where does the problem lie? The problem lies entirely within us, within the heart of man. This vindication then, a vindication of the law of God that begins in verse 7, arises now in connection with a statement that Paul makes back in verse 5. When we were in the flesh... When we were in the flesh, sinful passions were at work in our members. They were at work in the faculties of our soul, in our minds, in our heart, in our imaginations, in our desires, in our affections, in our emotions, and in our actions, in our conducts. Sinful passions were at work in our members and were actually aroused or provoked by the law, producing death in us. Now that statement that Paul makes in verse 5 is then picked up as he moves now to verse 7. Now first, if the law is arousing sinful passions in us, doesn't make that make the law sin to me? Doesn't that make the law the author of sin? In chapter 3 verse 20, Paul said that by the law is the knowledge of sin. In chapter 3, verse 21, righteousness comes apart from the law. Chapter 3, verse 28, a man is justified apart from deeds of the law. In chapter 4, verse 14, those who are of the law don't inherit the promise. Chapter 4, verse 15, the law actually brings about wrath. Chapter 5, verse 20, the law entered so that the offense might abound. 
Chapter 6, verse 14, sin has dominion over those who are under the law. In chapter 7, verse 4, those who are under the law cannot be married to Christ. So why isn't it, Paul, why is it that the law isn't sin to me? Why isn't the law sinful? Why isn't the law the author of sin in me? It might seem as though to some that Paul was making his case against the law of God. So chapter 7, verse 7 then, what shall we say? Is the law sin? The second, if sin then takes opportunity through the law to kill me, why isn't it then that the law becomes death to me? Why isn't it that the law kills me? In chapter 2, verse 12, those without the law perish without the law. Those under the law will perish through the law or under the law. Chapter 3, verse 20, no flesh will be justified by the law. Chapter 4, verse 4, the one who works under the law, his wages are counted as debt, and the wages of sin is death. Chapter 5, verse 13, sin is imputed under the law. Chapter 6, verse 14, those who are under law are not under grace. Chapter 7, verse 5, sinful passions aroused by the law were producing death in me. Aroused by the law. Chapter 7, verse 13, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly, Paul, you're making a case that the law is what kills us. The law has become death to me. Now, in the hearing of a Jew, or in the hearing of a Judaizer, converted Jewish Christians in Rome, Paul's statements from chapter 3 now through chapter 7 might appear to sound like Paul is making a case against the law of God. But the law of God is holy, just, and good. And the law of God plays an enormously valuable role in the life of a Christian. Statements like these might leave room for shameless objections from Jewish objectors or from sinful objectors like you and I were before the law. Is the law sinful? Does the law produce death in me? The answer to both those questions is a resounding no. But it sounds like from Paul's statements that he could be making a case for this. So Paul intends, he's not going to let those objections lie. Paul intends to vindicate the law of God now through the common experience of the Christian. There is no problem with the law of God. The law of God is holy, just, and good. The problem lies entirely within us. At the same time that Paul now will seek to vindicate the law of good, the law of God, in the sight of the Christian. At the same time, we're actually going to see in these verses, not simply the weakness of the law to transform or the, the powerlessness of the law to justify. We're going to see, in looking at the law of God, a powerful and insightful examination, if you will, into the depths of our own depravity. How depraved is the human heart? We have no idea. <laughs> and we're only scratching the surface when we consider texts like this. But we're going to get a taste in Paul's treatment of the law of God here. We're going to get a taste of what human depravity is really all about. The hopeless condition of the human heart apart from the grace of God that is found only in Jesus Christ our Lord. The hopeless condition of the human heart is depraved. Now Paul begins by addressing the first of these objections in verse 7. And he does so by vindicating the law here in four ways. First, 
the law exposes sin. Verse 7, apart from the law, I would not have known sin, Paul says. So the law exposes sin. Secondly, the law provokes sin, verses 8 and 9. Sin at work through the commandment was aggravating or provoking all manner of sinful desire in me. The law provokes sin. Third, the law brings death. Sin through the law, sin kills us. Verses 10 through 12. Finally, the law magnifies sin. Verse 13, we come to see through the law sin as exceedingly sinful. And brothers and sisters, that's necessary. It's necessary that Paul would spend time in Romans chapter 6 now and chapter 7 dealing with the law of God. Why? Because we need to see ourselves in light of the law so that we see the value, the preciousness of Jesus Christ, right? The treasure that is Jesus Christ. So the law magnifies our sin. Now first, verse 7, the law exposes sin. Verse 7, what shall we say then? What shall we say to all that has gone before, is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, the question that opens verse 7 is raised by the Apostle Paul as a result of many interactions with the Jews. Many interactions with the Judaizers. The Jews and the Judaizers tended to follow Paul around. And everywhere you went, even in Gentile, predominantly Gentile churches, there were Jewish converts to Christ who struggled with this issue of the law. And so, although the question in in verse 7 is raised here by an imaginary objector, an imaginary interlocutor, the objection is not an imaginary objection. The objection was a very common objection. And because Paul would not have allowed such a a foolish and such an ignorant objection as is the law, sin, because he wouldn't let that stand or leave the gospel now open to such godless speculation, Paul raises and then answers the objection, is the law sin? Now, Paul has asserted that indwelling sin, our remaining corruption, Paul has asserted that it makes use of the law to enslave those who are under the law. It's an interesting way to think. But sin exerts its influence through the law to enslave those who are under the law. Sin works through the law to bring a sinner under the dominion of sin. It does that through the condemning power of the law. And through the condemning power of the law, Sinful passions are actually provoked in the sinner by the law. We're going to see that more as we work through this text. Now, if that's the case, the Jews would argue, if that's what you're saying, Paul, then we have to assert that the law itself is the cause of sin. And God is unjust in his application of the law, and God is unjust in his judgments made according to the law. Do you see why the law has to be vindicated, right? Now, again, just as with other objections raised at this point, the thought to Paul is absolutely absurd. The thought to us should be absolutely absurd, right? We can state the answer to the question before we get to the text. That is absurd. Let's unpack why, okay? Is the law sin? Or better yet, or better understood, is the law the cause of sin? Or 
is the law the reason or the cause of our condemnation? In other words, isn't God the one to blame for all of this? Paul answers, that's absurd. (laughs) Certainly not, literally, may it never be, God forbid. It's the strongest negation in the Greek. The law of God is not the cause of our sin. On the contrary, Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law reveals sin. The law exposes sin. Do you see? So, rather than being the cause of sin, the actual function of the law has to do with exposing sin. Paul essentially makes the same point in chapter 3, verse 20, in a text we've already looked at, where Paul says that by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul says, I wouldn't have known sin except through the law. The law convicts or exposes sin. And again, Paul responds now with his own personal experience, knowing at a practical level that his experience is the experience of us all, Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. You and I, brothers and sisters, we would not have known or understood sin except through the law of God. The law of God is necessary, okay? Paul is referring here in this to a point in the past. You recognize the past tense? I would not have known. I would not have understood sin except through the law. Paul is referring to a point in time in the past. For those studying Greek, that's an aorist indicative, which relates past tense, okay? At that moment, in the past, that knowledge or that understanding had lasting effect, lasting effect. Paul speaks of a time, of this time, as a time when he died. Look at verse 9. I was alive once without the law, but when the law came, sin revived, and I died. Verse 10, the commandment which was to bring life brought death instead. Verse 11, sin deceived me and killed me. Paul is speaking of a time in the past where he died. And he died, you could say, at the preaching of the law. In other words, this is a time in the past for the Apostle Paul when the law was brought brought to bear upon his sin, Paul was convicted under the preaching of the law and Paul died. He became convicted of his sin. And he died to sin and self then through faith in Jesus Christ. So this is a picture of when Paul was converted, right? When Paul was first converted and the law first came to bear in weight upon his conscience. Now, how does all that happen? What are the mechanics, so to speak? Paul's going to explain in our text. Dr. Murray, on this text, describes the law of God as particularized in commandments. Have the law of God, and the law of God is particularized in commandments, Those particular commandments expose particular aspects of our sin to our conscience. The law exposes our sin to our God-given conscience, our God-given warning system. Our sin is then exposed to our conscience through the means of each one of those particular commandments applied to our heart, applied to our conduct. And a well-informed and well-functioning conscience then accuses or else excuses based upon our understanding of the law. That's why you and I, as we come to understand the law more, as we understand the, the scope 
And the magnitude of the law, the extent of the law, the more conviction that brings upon our heart because more of our thoughts, more of our actions, more of our imaginations, more of our sinful emotions, more of our sinful reactions, so to speak, are brought under the searing spotlight of the law and confronted with our accusing conscience. Do you see? It's in that way that the law exposes sin. Each of those particular commandments bringing our conduct, our heart, in direct confrontation with the law of God, with our conscience that accuses according to the law. Now, Paul then gives a very personal and practical example in verse 7. Paul, the example that Paul gives is this. For, he says, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet conviction was first aroused in the heart of Paul by the means of the 10th commandment. That doesn't mean that this is the first time that Paul ever heard the 10th commandment. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul knew the law probably better than anyone else in Israel at the time. Paul knew the law. Paul knew all the manifest extent of the law. Paul understood the law of God. But Paul had never allowed a particular commandment to be brought to bear upon his own conscience, brought to bear upon his own thoughts, his own imaginations, his own conduct, and that to be confronted by his accusing conscience, it just hadn't struck Paul in that way ever before. I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. From Philippians 3, we know that Paul thought of himself as blameless under the law. According to the 10th commandment, Paul would have thought himself as blameless. I'm not a covetous person, Paul would have said. And yet, when the instrumentality of the law was applied to the heart and the conduct of Paul, the sin of covetousness in Paul's heart was exposed. The sin of covetousness was revealed. And it's interesting there that Paul uses the sin of covetousness to make this example, to give us this example. It's not just that sin exposed or sin was exposed in Paul's outward conduct. Sin was exposed in Paul's heart by the commandment, you shall not covet. And we know that that takes place by the Spirit of God. How many times have you preached the gospel to people? If you're a Christian, you've preached the gospel to people. And they've reacted like the young man from the evangelism testimony this morning. <laughs> I've not broken that law. I've not broken that law. I've not broken that law. Listen, all of the laws of God are broken. To break one is to stumble in all, but in particular, the sin of covetousness is involved in every breaking of the law of God. Every law that is broken involves covetousness. Every law that is broken involves idolatry. It's just not brought to bear on our heart and mind yet through the searing spotlight of the law. Paul's sin of covetousness was exposed when the law of God was brought to bear on his particular, on his heart, on his mind, on his conduct. And just as certainly as the law exposed the sin of covetousness in the heart of Paul or in the heart of you and I, the law would also direct in the path of righteousness. The law would also direct us in the path of repentance showing us how we're to live as those who are made in the image of God. The law can't justify. The law cannot sanctify. But what the law can do, what the law can certainly do, is expose our sin. 
The law can certainly reveal the true path of righteousness, point us to our need for the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that we see the purpose of the law. Paul essentially says here that unless the law had exposed my covetousness in the way that it did, Paul says, I would have remained in blindness with respect to my sin. Paul was blinded with respect to the law, blinded with respect to his own covetousness, and Paul said, unless the law had had been brought to bear upon my own heart, I would would have remained in ignorance. I would would have remained blind with respect to my sin. Now, indwelling sin doesn't work that way. Indwelling sin doesn't work through the law to expose sin or to make itself known. Indwelling sin seeks to obscure. Indwelling sin, indwelling corruption, seeks to conceal, to hide the good purpose of the law from our conscience. How does that work? There was a time in our own country uh, when sin might have been defined as sin. You heard people using the word sin, talking of sin. Sin was a, a common word in the vocabulary. You might have heard the word sin used on the news. <laughs> you certainly would have read it in books. It was used in the classroom. It was used of our behavior in our own country. When the thoughts and intents of our heart, as well as our conduct, was held up to the objective standard of God's law and justly condemned, rightly condemned. And then eventually what happened? Sin was done away with and replaced with crime. We're not sinning against God's law any longer. We're committing a crime. We're sinning against man's laws, but we're not sinning against God. We're breaking man's rules. Crimes became disorders, and then sin was psychologized. It's become a syndrome. (laughs) It's a disorder. Disorders in our country then became mental health challenges. I just need a mental health day. (laughs) No, you're a sinner. (laughs) And today, even after committing the worst offenses imaginable, after the school shooting this last week, I heard them speaking about mental health again, mental health. That is abject wickedness, abject evil. But we're merely victims of a mental health crisis. Our country is going through a mental health crisis. It means we're in need of help ourselves. We need a mental health day. We need mental health help. But in no way are we guilty of anything deserving of condemnation. In no way are we guilty of sinning against God. Who is God anyway? There is no such thing as God, right? Don't tell me I'm wrong. We're not ultimately responsible. That's where it all leads. Prisons become resorts. Sentences are reduced. The death sentence is cruel. Bail is eliminated and true justice is mocked. Men have entirely done away with the law of God. We have no objective standard anymore whereby the conscience of a man may be confronted by the law of God. They have no basis on which to make any righteous judgment. And what we have left is a a weak and cowardly relativism 
that has replaced the good purpose of the law. Why? Because we don't like the law. Our flesh doesn't like the law. Our sin doesn't like the law. Sin wants to hide itself away from the convicting spotlight of the law. Sin, indwelling corruption, wants to conceal our sin, our heart, our conduct from the, the exposing law of God. Do you see? It wants to conceal the good purpose of the law from our conscience. Worse yet, the modern church has done the same thing. The modern church has lost all understanding of the law, all understanding of sin and evil with, with the world. They run with the world in trying to call good evil and evil good. And the gospel, the gospel, which involves the preaching of the law, is reimagined to address the real issues that face us, issues like social justice, racial inequality, man's felt needs. And we've done away with the law of God. Why? Because our sin wants to conceal the law of God from our conscience. You'll very rarely, if ever, hear threat of condemnation or threat of hell from pulpits in those that profess to be the Lord's church. Now, this is true. This is true. We can see this uh, as an axiomatic fact all around us. And it's this that makes the preaching of the law that much more urgent and that much more necessary. It's this that makes preaching of the gospel on the part of God's people that much more urgent and necessary. It may be, it likely is for many, that sinful fallen people will never have their consciences confronted with the law of God unless a faithful brother or sister shows up to preach the gospel to them. And if that happens, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. That's a conversation they're going to remember because it never happens apart from God's people being faithful with the gospel. We have to be faithful in preaching the law of God and preaching the gospel. We are those who serve as the pillar and ground of truth, right? We must bring the law of God to bear upon this wicked and perverse generation. The law exposes sin. Secondly, the law also provokes sin. Provokes sin. Look at verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Rather than exposing sin, rather than leading us in a path of righteousness, indwelling sin that principle of sin that exists and works in your, in your members, indwelling sin exploits the desires that are at work in our flesh. Sin exploits our own desires. James 2 says the same, doesn't he? James says the same. Each one is tempted when he is dragged away by his own desires. He becomes distracted by his own desires. Each one is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed. 
And when sin conceives, when it conceives its evil plot, when it conceives its evil course, that conception brings forth sin and sin brings forth death. Sin works through the means of the law to provoke within us all manner of evil desire. Paul said, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But instead, my indwelling sin used, Paul would say, or worked through that very commandment to provoke within me all manner of coveting, all manner of evil desire. The word used by the King James Version is concupiscence. That's a a valuable word we need to bring back, (laughs) concupiscence. Concupiscence refers to the desire for anything that God has forbidden. Concupiscence is the desire, the desire for anything that God has forbidden. And it's a sin that is involved in every other known sin. Every sin involves coveting. Every sin involves desire, evil desire. But the net effect of what Paul does here by noting this specific sin is to expand our understanding of the scope of sin indicted under the law from mere outward action now to that which proceeds out of the heart. What Paul does by using this particular sin is not simply locate sin in our actions or locate sin in our conduct, as so many today wish to do, but Paul also locates sin in the heart of man, concupiscence. Many today think of sin as the outward act. The outward act. As long as someone refrains from committing the outward act, They're not guilty of sin. We see this argument used all the time right now with respect to homosexuality, don't we? I can have those desires. The desires in and of themselves are not sinful. It's if I were to act upon those desires, they they become sinful. Paul is saying precisely the opposite here. That sin, my indwelling corruption, works within the faculties of my soul to produce in me all manner, not just of desire, but evil desire, concupiscence. The desire itself is evil and sin is producing or provoking within us in response to the law, sin is provoking within us all manner of evil desire. Sin proceeds out of his heart. The evil desire is not sin, they would say. It's what you do with that evil desire that matters. No. (laughs) As long as we don't carry out the evil desire that has been aroused in our heart and mind, we are not guilty of sin. No. That idea was common among the Pharisees at Paul's time, in Paul's time. That was what made the preaching at the Sermon on the Mount so necessary. Paul is essentially saying, Paul is essentially saying, I would not have realized, I would not have realized that desires, coveting, lusts, evil thoughts, imaginations, affections, I would not have realized those things to be sin unless the law had come along and shown me that it was so. In other words, the law is not just concerned with our conduct, the law is concerned with man's heart. And we know this to be true from the Lord's own application of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Matthew 5, 21. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, not in a new understanding or a new interpretation or a new application of the law, but in the real application of the law. I say to you, in applying the law correctly, that whoever is angry 
with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. In other words, it's sinful, sin against God to harbor anger in your heart against your brother. God said that that is the seed of murder in the heart. The Lord is putting a spotlight on the true extent of the law, not just to our conduct, but to the sinful heart of fallen man. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, again, not expanding an interpretation of the law, but giving the actual application of the law. The Lord says that to look at a woman uh, to lust for her is to have already committed adultery with her in your heart. To look with lust is to sin against God. If you remember God's description of man before man is destroyed by the flood in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, God describes man this way. Every intent or every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only what? Evil continually. Continually. Men overcome by, driven by their lusts, sinful passions at work in their members. Those sinful passions at work over time, at work to the extreme such that God describes men and would later describe men after the fall as the thoughts or imaginations of their heart only evil continually. Why don't sinful people realize that? Because sinful passions that work in your members are seeking to conceal your conduct, conceal your thoughts, conceal those sinful passions from the light of your conscience or from the light of the law. It seeks to hide the inner workings of your heart and deceives you in that. Concupiscence, right? Concupiscence. Paul says that in verse 8, in verse 8, but sin, back in Romans chapter 7, verse 8, Sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of concupiscence. There's the word. All manner of evil desire or lust. Now, Paul describes himself in this lost condition. This is when Paul was lost. Paul describes himself in this lost condition as being filled with lusts and evil desires. Filled with lusts and evil desires of all types. Paul says, all manner of them were in my heart and mind. All manner of them were driving me, compelling me, working in me to to satiate or to satisfy my desires. And Paul says that that sin did that through its use of the law. It was sin taking opportunity by or through the commandment. That's James chapter 2. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this text describes the lost sinner as a cesspool of iniquity. A cesspool of iniquity. And when you were lost, do you remember thinking of yourself in that way? No. You were oblivious to that reality, and yet you were a cesspool of iniquity, a hater of God, antagonistic. Well, I don't hate God. Yes, you do. <laughs> and the law will expose it. The searing spotlight of the law will expose it. This is the depravity of a lost man. The depravity of a lost man, a fallen man, is a cesspool of iniquity. Sinful passion stirred up, fomenting in him like the waves of the sea, tossing to and fro, and whipping up in him sinful passions, sinful desires, sin. How depraved is man that when he knows 
or is faced with the law, that his fallen nature then responds with an onslaught of increasing rebellion. How sinful, how rebellious are we that when sin takes opportunity through the commandment, that that sin and that action of the law or that view of the law actually arouses within us not less sin, but more sin. Not less rebellion, but more rebellion. Man is a cesspool of iniquity. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that the law entered that the sin or the offense might abound. The entrance of God's law being brought to bear on the heart and mind of a fallen human being actually arouses a fallen man to sin more. The law provokes sin, do you see? And that's, that power or sin is powerful in the extreme. Sin works overtime in your members. Sin is described as reigning to death or unto death. Now, how is it? How is it that the law provokes sin? How is it that the law has this mastery over us when we were lost? Well, we were born natural rebels. Natural born rebels. We were born at enmity with God. We were born with a natural or innate hatred or antagonism or hostility toward God. An innate or natural antagonism. Chapter 8, look over there. Chapter 8, verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The carnal mind is an enemy of God. What about those nice people that go to church down the road? They're such nice people. Those Mormons, they're so nice. Those Roman Catholics, they were so nice. What happens as soon as you apply the law of God? The truth as it is in Jesus Christ. The antagonism, that rebellion against God, is inherent to a lost person's fallen nature. It is provoked and aggravated by the law and results in a reflex of self-preservation and that reflex kicks in and comes to his defense when he's confronted, when his conscience is confronted with the law. And what is that reflex? What is that rebellion, that self-preservation? What is it trying to preserve? It's trying to preserve his supposed autonomy, his so-called right to rule himself. He locks his knees. He will not bow. He tells all manner of lies to himself to maintain his autonomy. He will give himself, give himself to all manner of evil desire in the expression of his autonomy. And that's ultimately what it is. It stirs up evil desire and we give ourselves to all manner of evil desires as an expression of our autonomy, as an expression, as it were, to rule ourselves, our right to rule ourselves. I remember um, witnessing, uh, was out, by myself, and I uh, was witnessing in a mobile home park and witnessed to an elderly man uh, sitting in his uh, living room right in front of the door. His door was open. I walked up and introduced myself and started talking to him. A uh, tenderhearted guy and um, wanted to talk, engaged in talking. And as I was taking him through the law, he became convicted. 
of his sin. And so started uh, responding uh, with conviction, saying that he wants to turn from his sin, saying that he wanted uh, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it's a good conversation. I was uh, great, <laughs> grateful to the Lord for that encouragement. As I'm getting through the law with him, and he's becoming uh, increasingly convicted over his sin, his wife, who had been listening in the room next door to that one, uh, the door also open, overhearing our conversation about this time, comes flying into the living room. It's like, how dare you speak to us? It was us at that point, <laughs> not, just, not just him. How, because she's been listening, and the, the law was convicting her. How dare you speak to us like we're lost, like we don't know, and we're not going to heaven? She was absolutely beside herself irate. What is that? That is sin at work in her members through the commandment to arouse or to stir up or to provoke within her all manner of evil desire. And what did that evil desire express itself in? It expressed itself in self-preservation of her supposed autonomy, her supposed right to rule and reign herself. And what was the expression that that um, rebellion took? Religion. You're not going to tell me we're not going to heaven. If anybody's worthy of heaven, it's me. <laughs> you know, that, that anger in her voice. Unbelievable what sinful, fallen human beings are capable of. That is the principle that is work, at work in our members. And that's how it works. That's how it works. To lesser degrees and to greater degrees. Right? We see sin at work through our members, taking opportunity by the commandment to stir up or to aggravate or to provoke all manner of concupiscence. And that concupiscence in expressed then is in preservation of our own right to rule ourselves, our own rebellion against the one who created us and our own self-expressed right to reign and to rule our own lives. Wickedness, the depravity of fallen men. And often, brothers and sisters, that comes through the preaching of the law. When we preach the gospel to people, there has to be a, a somewhat of an expectation <laughs> that you're going to encounter hostility when you bring the law to bear on the conscience of a fallen man or woman, boy or girl. And it has to be so. You cannot withhold the preaching of the law because you fear that reaction. That's the reaction of a fallen, depraved human being, and they need the gospel. They've got to hear. They've got to be brought under the conviction of the law that they might be saved. We have to do it. Sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of concupiscence, all manner of evil desire or lust. The nature of sin is yet another reason why we must die to the law, why we must die to the law. The nature of that sin that principle of sin at work in our members is another reason why we must be born again, right? It's another reason why we need to be made a new creation. It's why we so desperately need Jesus Christ. We are enslaved to that and desperately need him. Paul goes on to say in verse eight that apart from the law, apart from the law, sin was dead, 
Now think with me, he clarifies that in verse nine. He says in verse nine, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now again, Paul's speaking autobiographically. Listen to all the eyes in there, the first person pronouns. And he's giving us here a personal account of his own experience, an experience that he knows to be the experience of every Christian. And he begins with his experience with sin and the law as a lost man. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. There was a time for the Apostle Paul and for you and I, there was a time before the law was applied to our heart and mind. There was a time before it had been brought to bear upon our conscience with that kind of result. You remember? At that time, sin appeared to him appeared to you and I, sin appeared to be dead. We weren't embroiled in conflict over our sin. We weren't in agony over our sin, in despair over our sin. You and I and Paul here, contentedly living in his sin, Paul appeared to be alive. You and I appeared to be alive by outward appearances. But when the law was applied, sin revived, sin came to life, so to speak, and Paul said, I died. Apart from the law, apart from the law, sin was dead. Or better understood, apart from the law, it was as though sin were dead to me. Apart from the law, it was as though sin were dead. Paul said in verse 7, I would not have known sin except through the law. So in Paul's experience, for example, Paul would not have understood the depths of his coveting. Does that mean, does that mean that the fact that Paul would not have understood or would not have realized. Does that mean that the principle of sin in Paul was dormant? No. The principle of sin in Paul was at work overtime. The principle of sin was at work. In work, at work in Paul's members, lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, bearing its fruit to death. But what was that principle of sin doing it? That principle of sin was at work hiding or concealing Paul's thoughts, Paul's heart, Paul's conduct from the conscience. Concealing the conscience from the law, bearing its fruit to death. We may be unaware of sin's deadly work, but that principle of sin is always at work. Even now, brother, sister, you may be unaware of sin's deadly work if you're not careful, but trust me, trust the Bible. Don't trust me, trust the Bible. According to the Bible, that principle of sin is always always at work. As long as Paul's conscience remained uninformed, as long as Paul's conscience remained unchallenged by the law, sin, that principle of sin in Paul's members, operated under a shroud of darkness, concealed from the conscience, under the cover of night, so to speak. Not entirely. Never entirely. Conscience of an unbeliever is never switched into the off position. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? The conscience is never in the off position. There's never a time in the life of an unconverted person when they are not under the spotlight of the law. The unconverted person is always under the spotlight of the law. But sin exploited Paul's willful ignorance of the law. And I say that carefully, knowing that Paul was a master of the law. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the law inside and out, but Paul was sinfully or willfully ignorant of the law's application to his own heart and attitudes and conduct. 
Sin exploited Paul's willful ignorance of the law. Sin exploited Paul's willful blindness. Sin exploited Paul's shut eyes and deafened ears. And all the while, sin wrought havoc upon his soul while Paul actively suppressed the light of the truth in his unrighteousness. Suppressing the truth of God in his unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1, remember? Sin at work exploiting his willful blindness. And if not exposed by the light of the law, the suppressed conscience of the unbeliever is rarely, if ever, aroused to a state of alarm over sin. It takes a work of the Spirit of God to do that. And sin continues to operate unchecked in the shadows. Sin is always powerfully active. But to the unconverted man, to the unconverted man in his blindness, sin operating in darkness, sin operating in the shadows, it would appear as though sin were dead. That's what Paul is saying here. His conscience suppressed, unable to perceive the fullness of sin's deadly work. All the while, Paul suppresses the truth as a lost man in his unrighteousness. Now, in contrast, Paul says in verse 9, sin may have appeared dead to me, but I was alive. Paul says in verse 9, I was alive, blissfully and almost entirely unaware of his spiritual condition. That's the way most of us as lost people live our lives. He's not saying he was spiritually alive. That would not be true. His condition is precisely the opposite. He is spiritually dead. But this is how Paul, as a lost man, this is how you and I as lost people once experienced life. The conscience effectively suppressed, we were enjoying the passing pleasures of sin, fulfilling all manner of sinful desires and lusts. Totally unconscious of our abject antagonism and hatred for God. Totally or mostly unconscious of our enmity against God. It's when that lost person, that fallen sinner, is then confronted with a moral challenge that comes through the law that the conflict then begins. When the law is pressed upon the conscience of a fallen man or woman, boy or girl, then the conflict begins. Verse 9, when the commandment came, that's when sin revived and I died. In other words, it's through the application of the law that Paul's conscience was then stirred. For Paul, it was stirred by an application of the 10th commandment. And Paul's conscience, now enlivened by the law, Paul's conscience then accused. Paul, his conscience might say, you are filled with all manner of evil desire. You are an enemy of God by wicked works. Paul realized his desperate, his hopeless spiritual conviction, uh, condition due to sin, Paul realized his condition, his bankrupt condition under the law, he was spiritually dead before all that happened, but was unaware that he was dead. But now, through the means of the commandment, you shall not covet, Paul's sin was dragged into the light and his conscience accused. It wasn't that Paul had no idea what the law said or what the law meant. It's not the case. Paul was a Pharisee. But the law never had penetrated to Paul's heart and Paul's conscience in the way that it did at that moment. And when it did, 
it was as though sin, under the spotlight, under the microscope of God's law, it was as though sin came to life. And Paul, once blissfully, willfully ignorant, was now attentive, (laughs) was now aware, now accused by his properly working, properly functioning conscience, and Paul died. Sin revived, Paul said, and I died. Paul knew the commandment, but now the commandment condemned his own desires, condemned his own actions, condemned his own thoughts as sin. Paul finally saw himself. He became aware that moment of his true spiritual condition, do you see? Is it the law that killed Paul? No. What kills? Sin kills, you see? Sin at work through what is good. At work through what is good, sin kills. True of all of us apart from Christ. And true whether you're aware of it or whether you're not aware of it. If you're a lost person, you've never turned to Christ. There's all manner of evil desire, all manner of concupiscence that keeps you from turning to Jesus Christ, that prevents you from repenting, that comforts you in some vain hope of future comfort or future care, that it's all going to turn out okay in the end. That's the deception of sin. Your sin at work in the shadows, concealed under the cover of night, as it were, hiding your own thoughts, your own imaginations, your own desires, and your own conduct, hiding it from the spotlight of the law that might, if you weren't suppressing the truth in your unrighteousness, that might convict you of that sin and show you the depraved nature of your heart. But you continue in ignorance because you willfully blind your eyes and deafen your ears to the truth. Allow the word of God, allow the law of God to do its searing work upon your heart, upon your mind. Place yourself under the spotlight of the law of God and accept God's diagnosis of your bankrupt spiritual condition. Has the law revealed that to you? Do you see your sin as exceedingly sinful? Do you see your condition as one inherently antagonistic toward God? Do you see your condition as perilous? Do you see in that why you are worthy of hell and eternal torment? You're an enemy of God by your wicked works. convicted by the law in that way, your only hope is the gospel. Your only hope is the gospel. Having come to grips with your spiritual condition, what does God freely do in grace and mercy for you? Why are you here this morning? It's because God in grace has held out an offer through Jesus Christ, an offer in the gospel of his own righteousness, to replace, to stand in the stead of your filthy, vile, depraved rags. 
that perfect life lived by Jesus Christ. His perfect sacrifice, his sacrifice in death, a perfect sacrifice available for your sin if you would repent and believe in him for salvation. Your only hope lies in the gospel. Romans chapter one, when we were looking at that chapter a while back, uh, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, against all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. What is the reason? What is the reason that Paul gives for his presentation of the gospel in this letter to the church at Rome? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and godliness of men who suppress the truth in their ungodliness. It's for that reason that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. That in answer to our depravity, in answer to our own sin and rebellion against God, God sent his own son into the world to save sinners. To offer as a free gift of his own grace, his own righteousness, the righteousness of his son to those of us who are unrighteous that the unrighteous might become righteous in him, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a glorious, glorious condescension of our transcendent God. It's a condescension to save sinners for his own glory, for the sake of his son. I implore you on behalf of Christ, turn from your sin and put your faith in him. Why will you perish? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked man would turn from his wicked way and live. There's life to be had, eternal life in the gospel. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this uh, look at ourselves uh, from Romans chapter 7. We thank you that uh, through the law, through your word, we can see uh, a bit of our own depravity. Uh, a bit of our fallen condition apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and consequently through the law, our need for Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you for your law, which is holy and just and good in that it points us as a tutor. It points us and drives us fleeing to the cross for salvation, fleeing to our Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness that we might have as a gift of your grace his righteousness, being united to him in his death and being united with him in his resurrection. We might be justified by faith, having been justified by faith, having peace with God, having been reconciled to you through your son, and now in the Christian life, having access to that grace in which we stand through faith in Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you for being at work in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure uh, with the purpose and the aim one day, Lord, of being glorified, free from the presence of sin forever to worship you and praise you in eternity unfettered by sin. I pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts and minds of sinners here today, God, that you would convict them under the spotlight of your law that you would not allow them to suppress this truth in their unrighteousness, Lord, but that you would unstop their ears and 
give sight to blind eyes that under the spotlight of the law, they might see their own bankrupt condition and might turn to Jesus Christ in faith. May it be for the glory of your name and may it be for the exaltation of our Lord and Savior in whose name we pray, amen.